I'd invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as we continue our series, third week now into this series entitled The Greatest Chapter, where we're looking at Romans chapter 8, and we come this morning to verses 5 to 13, and I told you we were going to pick up the pace just a little bit, so we've got some ground to cover this morning. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, as we're about to see, uh, it is the Spirit who gives life. And Lord, we need the Spirit now to open our hearts and minds, to illumine your word. Help us to taste and see this morning that the Lord is good. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there are only two kinds of people in the world. In fact, everyone in this room falls into one of two categories. And I don't have in mind something flippant like whether or not you like creamy or crunchy peanut butter. Creamy is the only way to go. I'm not talking about your sexuality, whether you're male or female. I'm not talking about your political allegiances, whether you're on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle. No, there, there are only two kinds, there are only two categories of people in the room this morning and in the world today. And what are they, you might ask? Who are these two types of people and, and what is it that distinguishes them? Well, I direct your attention there to the middle of our text this morning in verse 9. Apostle Paul says, anyone, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. There it is. There is the distinction. There's the difference. There are only two categories of people in the world today from God's perspective. And who are they? They are those who have the Spirit of Christ and those who do not. So, in other words, there are only regenerate and unregenerate people. There are only converted and unconverted people. There are those who have life and those who don't. Verse 5 says it like this. There are those who live according to the flesh, as we'll see what that means this morning, and those who live according to the Spirit. So, either you possess the Spirit or you don't. Either you belong to Jesus or you don't. There are no third categories. There's no middle ground. These, Paul says, are the only two types of people in the world today from God's perspective. Either you have the Spirit or you don't. Our text this morning, verses 5 to 13, is about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's about life in the Spirit. And and, and this passage this morning, perhaps more than any other, is one of the clearest in all of the Bible, about what it truly means to be a Christian, about what a Christian is. What is a Christian, fundamentally? What what does it mean to be a Christian? And listen, it doesn't mean you prayed a prayer. It doesn't mean that you got baptized or you read your Bible. It doesn't mean you're a member of a church or a member of a small group. It's not that you try to be a good person or you live a good life or you help your neighbors, or just even because you say that you are. Teenagers, children, listen. It's not because your parents are Christians that make you a Christian, or because you believe some intellectual facts about the Bible. No. Paul is abundantly clear in these verses this morning that what makes someone a Christian is whether or not they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Whether or not they possess spiritual life, whether or not they are alive spiritually to the things of God and they live under the control and the sway and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And listen, if that doesn't characterize your life, you're not a Christian. And so the effect of our text this morning in verses 5 to 13, it really should be twofold. There's a twofold response to our text this morning, and here it is. For some in the room this morning, these verses, these verses, they should provide for you, Christian, a deep sense of comfort and strength and assurance 
They should lead you to thankfulness and gratitude as you see here who you were before the Spirit of God moved upon your life, granting you spiritual life, taking up residence in you, and, and enabling you now to walk in obedience to Christ. And so it should empower you, Christian, to pursue now holy living. But for others in the room this morning, these verses, I think, should actually be a reason to examine yourself. In fact, for some here, these verses, I think, should actually serve for you this morning as a gracious warning. Because there are some in the room this morning who are perhaps deceived. Even you call yourself a Christian. When in fact, you're actually devoid of spiritual life. And you don't possess the Spirit. You don't belong to Jesus. You have no affections for God or His Word. And so this text this morning is both an encouragement, it calls for an encouragement, and it calls for examination. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says this morning. I'd invite you to stand with me as we read these verses together, beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. You can be seated this morning. I shared with you, remember, a couple of weeks ago, as we began this study, that there are really two great themes in this chapter. There's, there, there's a lot of sub-themes, but there's really kind of two overarching themes in this chapter. And those themes were, if you remember, I told you, the work of the Holy Spirit and the security of the believer. Chapter 8 is about the work of the Holy Spirit and the security of the believer. And it's that second theme, the security of the believer, that, that sort of bookends this chapter. In fact, notice there, verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That because of the work of Jesus, because the sinless Son of God was punished for my sin, He died in my place, He took on human flesh so that my sin could be condemned in His flesh on the cross. Verse 3, I now have been declared righteous, justified, Sins forgiven through faith in him. And now there's hanging over that my life this, this banner now of no condemnation. Praise God. And it's that same theme that then closes out this chapter as well in chapter 8. Because if you notice there in verse 39, we see that we are now safe and secure and sheltered in Christ. Verse 39, nothing, he says, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, there's nothing that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. There is no condemnation and there's no separation. And so then, in between the two parts of this Romans 8 sandwich, so to speak, right, these bookends now, we see what? Well, we see the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I told you that the the name of the Spirit is mentioned some 20 times here in this chapter. So this, this is about the work of the Spirit now in us, empowering us, enabling us, saving us, sanctifying us, assuring us. And so the Christian life then, it's it's something that's completely supernatural, right? 
It's something that's done in us. It's something that's done to us. It's a supernatural work of the Spirit, and it's about the Spirit's work now in us. In fact, what you see in chapter 8 is that there's really no explicit imperatives. There's no real commands here, blatant commands we see anywhere in these verses. This is a work that is His work by the indwelling, empowering, sanctifying Spirit. It's not ours. But then, in the middle of all of that, in the midst of this chapter, verses 12 and 13, look there, we do see an implied command here. Like I said, there's no explicit commands, imperatives, do this, but there's an implied one, an implied command. In fact, in fact it's a warning. It's a warning. Look there at verses 12 and 13. Look what he says. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what's the warning? The warning is death. Death. And this death that Paul describes here, it isn't physical death. No, instead, this death is spiritual death. It's eternal death. It's death forever in hell. Now, how do we know that? Well, because notice that this death in verse 13 is only for those who live according to the flesh. While on the other hand, verse 13, those who put to death the deeds of the body, that's the implied command, they, however, will live. And this life, it's eternal life. It's life forevermore. And so notice that right here in the midst of this amazing chapter about eternal security, in the midst of this chapter here about the working of God the Holy Spirit in us through his ministry of sanctifying us, notice there is this implied command, this implied warning that if we do not put to death the deeds of the body, if we live, as Paul says, according to the flesh, then there is only death and judgment and condemnation. Anyone else feel the tension here this morning? Is my salvation, is my eternal security conditional upon what I do? And it's here, beloved, that we see the vitally important connection. And I'll just continue to hammer it again. As I'll say it again, we see the important connection between our justification, our legal standing with God, and our sanctification, the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, that, that we can't separate the two, meaning that you can't experience justification and not at the same time, experience ongoing sanctification. There must be growth. There must be change. There must be transformation. And in our text this morning, we see why. It's because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. When he moves in, when he takes over, things happen. Things change. Three points this morning I want you to see. And they all begin with C. So, you're welcome. First, we're going to see the contrast of the flesh and spirit, verses 5 to 8. Second, we're going to see the confirmation of the Spirit, verses 9 to 11. And then finally, we're going to see the call to those of the Spirit in verses 12 to 13. So the contrast, the confirmation, and the call. And most of my time is going to be spent on points one and two. And then I'm going to come back to point three next week. So first, the contrast of flesh and Spirit in verses five to eight. Notice there, in verses five to eight, they are the continuation from Paul's argument of what he began last week there in verse 4. And the reason we know that is because we see that little word there, for, or because, that begins verse 5. Paul's connecting them here. So, where if you remember last week, we saw in verse 4 that God has now justified us in his Son in order that he might now sanctify us by his Spirit. And so, verses 1 to 3, we see in chapter 8 that we see what God has done this work in Christ on our behalf, why? Look at verse 4. In order that 
the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God's aim for you, Christian, is your sanctification. This is His goal for you. And His goal, His aim, Paul says, is that we would now, verse 4, notice, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Can a Christian fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law? Can they? And I said to you last week, yes. Christian, you can fulfill the law of God. And if you remember, I asked last week, what is the righteous requirement of the law? In fact, even in our small group last week, someone said, they said, Joshua, when you, when you ask that question, what is the righteous requirement of the law? My, my first initial response, they said, was what? Perfection. That perfection is the righteous requirement of the law, right? And, and while I don't dismiss that to be true, that the law must be kept perfectly, which is why we need the perfect obedience of Christ, Amen? That's not what Paul has in mind here. Verse 4, what is the righteous requirement of the law? And I told you last week, it's love. Love is the righteous requirement of the law. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, if you look there, we see the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Chapter 13, verse 10 Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Loving God, loving neighbor, fulfills the law of God. And this is only possible, Christian, according to chapter 8, verse 4, for those who walk, who live, not according to the flesh, Paul says, but according to the Spirit. Meaning, it is only possible for those who are inhabited, indwelt, empowered by the Holy Spirit who can now and are enabled to fulfill the law of God. So in other words, it's the Spirit that empowers us to love God and love others from the heart. This, this new heart that we've now received as a result of the new covenant. That this once external law has now by the Spirit been written onto our hearts. And thus now we're able to actually fulfill the law of God. It's the work of the Spirit in us. And so then in verse 5, Paul now begins to expand on that. By contrasting those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. So notice the contrast here. He's going to show us why it is those in the flesh can't fulfill the law, while those in the Spirit can fulfill the law. Notice the contrast here. Look again, verse 5 to 8. Let me read them again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now let's be clear here. In these verses, verses 5 to 8, what Paul is doing in these verses is he's showing us two different types of people. Remember, as I said at the beginning, two categories, two natures, Two realms. And, and every person in the world, every person in this room, every person that you'll pass on the street tomorrow falls into one of these two categories. You're either, Paul says, in the flesh or you're in the spirit. So Paul isn't describing here the, the Christian's inward struggle that they face with temptation of the flesh to sin. He's not talking about sometimes, Christian, you're in the flesh and sometimes you're in the spirit. No, no, no. He's going to get to some of that later on in verses 12 and 13, the struggle, this inward struggle with sin for the Christian. No. But here what he's doing, this is a contrast between two categories of humanity. And to be a Christian means that you've been transferred from one category to the other. You've been transferred from the flesh to the spirit. So first notice these two types of people here. Look there, verse 5. 
Those who live according to the flesh, he says, and those who live according to the Spirit. So notice here these two basic natures. The nature of the Christian, he lives according to the Spirit, and the nature of the non-Christian, he lives according to the flesh. Now it might be helpful if, if we define some terms here, right? So for example, verse 5, what does Paul mean when he says those in the flesh? What's the flesh that he's talking about here? Well, just to be clear, he's not talking about your skin. He's not talking about your physical body, right? Or, or your muscles or, you know, what could be muscles in my case, right? Rather, he's talking about when he says the flesh, he means our unredeemed, corrupted, self-indulgent, sinfully fallen nature. That's what he means by the flesh. John Stott describes it like this. He says, the flesh is the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed. He goes on to say, our fallen, egocentric human nature, or more briefly, he says, the sin-dominated self. The sin-dominated self. John Murray, theologian John Murray, he describes it like this. He says, the flesh is human nature as corrupted, directed, and controlled by sin. So in other words, the flesh is mankind left to himself apart from God. The flesh is mankind apart from the intervening work of the Holy Spirit. That's the flesh. While on the other hand, look there, verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit means those who are inhabited and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's why the S is capitalized there in verse 5. This is God the Spirit, who at the moment of your conversion, Christian, at the moment when you hear the gospel and you respond in faith to Jesus Christ, the Spirit came in and he regenerated you and he indwelt you. And notice verse 5, he says, that those who are in each of these two realms, these two natures, whether, whether that be the flesh or the spirit, notice, Paul says, they, look what he says, live according to that nature. They live according to that realm. So this is, this is present, ongoing action. In fact, if you're reading from the New American Standard, it translates verse 5 they are according to the flesh or the spirit. Meaning that this is more about a person's nature than it is something about occasional behavior. You see what I'm saying? So it means that their lives, their lifestyles, their, their basic orientation and disposition are determined and directed and influenced either by the flesh or by the spirit. Meaning, listen, a Christian cannot live according to the flesh, and neither can a non-Christian live according to the Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson says, a fleshly Christian is an unthinkable contradiction. So if you are in the flesh then, and perhaps that describes some of you here this morning, right now, where you sit, you are in the flesh, unregenerate. If you are in the flesh, then your life right now is being determined by your unredeemed, corrupt nature. You live purely by a worldly orientation. But if you're in the Spirit, Paul says, then your life is going to be marked and guided by the one living under the control and values and influence of the Spirit. It's a life dominated by the Spirit. So let me ask you, does that describe you? Does that describe your life? Which of these describes your life? Someone who is directed and controlled and influenced by the flesh or by the Spirit? In fact, Paul is going to go on here now to elaborate on how these two natures, the flesh and the spirit, will inevitably determine 
three things about you. Three things about your life. Notice he continues the contrast there in verses 5 to 8. Look there first. Notice first he says the contrast between our mindsets. Our mindsets. Look there, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying what? Our nature determines our mindset. Not the other way around. So he's not saying we are like this because we think like this. He says we think like this. Why? Because this is who you are by nature. Now the word mind there, look at verse 5, or to set the mind, verse 6, it it really, it doesn't really capture Paul's idea most effectively here because the English doesn't really have a word for this. This isn't something, don't be confused, this isn't something purely mental when he says the mind here. No, verse 5, to set your mind, here's what it means. It means your basic attitude. It means the, the, the orientation and, and bent of your life. It means the pattern of your thinking. It means the lifestyle that you pursue. It means the affections of your heart. It means the direction of your will. That's what it means to set the mind. That's what he means here. It's a mind set on the flesh. So the mindset of the flesh means, friend, that you are oriented then towards worldliness. You're oriented to the things of the world. You see, when we hear that word flesh, right, we, we often tend to think that it really just means kind of sensual, sexual pleasures, don't we? That's what we often think of when we hear that word flesh. But really, it's just someone who's worldly-minded, preoccupied with worldly things. What drives their ambitions and, and, and what drives their concerns and their desires, it's purely physical, It's purely physical. It's it's, it's seen in how they spend their time. It's seen in how they spend their energies and what they concentrate on and think on and give themselves to. That's the mindset of the flesh. Well, on the other hand, notice, the mindset of the spirit means what? It means that you are oriented toward the things of the spirit. It means that what preoccupies your thoughts and your affections but the things of the Spirit. You love the things of the Spirit. What he loves, you love. What he hates, you hate. Leon Morris, he describes it as this. He says, the mindset of the Spirit is an absorbing interest in the things of God. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards called these holy affections. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean That as a Christian, as one who lives according to the Spirit, it doesn't mean that you do this flawlessly. It doesn't mean that you do this perfectly, that you do this sinlessly. No, Paul's going to talk about remaining sin. But he does mean, however, that it describes the basic orientation of your life. Either the flesh or the Spirit, the mindset of the flesh or the Spirit. But not only is the mindset of the flesh and Spirit different, so also notice, look there, Not only our mindsets, but our spiritual state. Look there at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So the mindset of sinful man is death, both, both spiritual death now and forever, but the mind that's controlled by the spirit, what? Life and peace. And Paul doesn't have in mind here something, I think, subjective. This is an objective reality, Christian, meaning this is real spiritual life. We are alive to God. Chapter 6, verse 11. We are alert to spiritual realities. We are now hungering and thirsting and desiring God. We have peace with God. Objective peace. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whereas those whose minds are set on the flesh, they are spiritually lifeless. They're corpses. 
They're dead to the things of God and to spiritual reality. Verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death. In fact, this brings us to another difference between those in the flesh and the spirit. Look there in verses 7 and 8. Not only our mindset and our spiritual state, but also our attitude toward God. Look there, verse 7. Notice the two contrasting attitudes here. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, verses 7 and 8, notice that Paul, he doesn't mention here the, the contrasting attitude of the Spirit, does he? It's, it's just implied, isn't it? It would be the opposite of all of these things, right? But he's, he's contrasting them. Notice the attitude of the unregenerate person toward God. Look what he says. They are hostile to God, meaning hatred, animosity toward God. Notice, they do not submit to God's law. In fact, he says they can't. And they cannot please God. So they can't even please him. While those in the spirit, on the other hand, would be those who love God and submit to God and actually can please God because of the spirit. Now, what does that mean? Because, Pastor, I know a lot of unbelievers who don't actively hate God. You know some like that? In fact, they're, they're actually pretty moral people. They, they, they might even try to obey certain biblical commands, right? They can submit to a law of God. And even, even when an unbeliever does something good, doesn't that please God? But you see, the, the idea here is one, really, it's one of disinterest in God. It's a life lived of independence from God. It may not be open hostility toward God, but it's indifference. It's a God-ignoring lifestyle, and really, it's just the attitude, it's the disposition of their hearts, that the natural man in the flesh is born with a disinterest in God. A disinterest in his word, in his kingdom, in his church, in his gospel, in his glory, And this is why the, the, the fleshly person does not, and Paul says, cannot submit to God's law. Because, as we said, what is the fulfilling of God's law? It's love of God and love of neighbor. And we are born, friends, with this idolatrous nature that is bent towards what? Self-gratification, isn't it? That's our nature. And this is why we can't please God either. You know Why? Because it doesn't please God to ignore him. Does it? This is what arouses his holy anger. Romans 1. It did not honor him as God. The mindset of the flesh is to live a life of total indifference toward God. So friends, this is total depravity. This is total inability. Every part of our being is under the grip of sin. We are dead to sin. We are blinded to the things of God by nature. We are lifeless towards spiritual realities. We hate God. We dishonor God. We cannot please God. We're indifferent to Him. We're antagonistic to Him, at enmity with Him, and as a result, we are under His divine judgment because of our sin. And verse 8 is abundantly clear that we cannot rescue ourselves from this hopeless condition. This is all of us by nature. And therefore, it will take a divine, supernatural, monergistic work of God by His Spirit if anything at all is going to change. How do you go from life to death? Second, I want you to notice the confirmation of the Spirit. The confirmation of the Spirit in verses 9 to 11. So if our previous verses, if they, if they depict and they describe for us this, this really grim, this really dark reality, it's true of all of us, 
of the, of the natural, unregenerate, fleshly person, if this is fallen humanity apart from the supernatural influence of the Spirit, then verses 9 to 11 describe those who do have the Spirit. What distinguishes you, Christian, from the rest of the world? Look there. Notice verse 9 to 11. Let me read them again. You, however. So notice, notice the abrupt shift now. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So these verses, they're important verses on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Four things that are different about you, Christian. Just want you to see. Four things you have. Four things you possess. Four things that are true of you that those in the flesh don't have. Now, real quick, before I give you those four things, just notice something about these verses. Two things about them. Look there. First, I just want you to notice, notice the change in pronouns. Okay, and you may say, well, pastor, I haven't had grammar school in forever. What's a pronoun, right? Well, that's okay, because verse 9, notice Paul shifts now from the third person plural. Look there, they, those, them, to now what? The second person, you, you. So verse 9 to 11, Paul's applying these realities to you, Christian. This is about you. So feel and sense and experience this morning the personal address here from God to you, Christian. This is true of you. And then notice just also, the second thing I just say as we look at these verses, the, the three ifs there. You can see the three ifs, can't you? Look there in verse 9. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you. Verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And really the only thing I would say about these three ifs, is that these ifs, they are not ifs of doubt, they are ifs of assurance. You hear what I'm saying? Those ifs shouldn't cause you to doubt, Christian. Those should give you firm, rock-solid assurance. And in fact, you could translate it, as indeed is the case for you, Christian. Four differences. Four differences. Here they are. Number one, the Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit dwells in you. Look there, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. My brothers and sisters, this is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. The Spirit of Almighty God Himself dwells in you. Think about that. Verse 9, that word dwell, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that he just sort of pops in and out, right? Like, maybe you got a relative who comes to stay with you periodically and they sleep in the spare bedroom from time to time. No. That word dwell, it comes from the Greek word oikos, which we get the word home, house. So, in other words, Paul's saying the Spirit of God, he's taken up residence in you. He's made his home in you. He's He's here to stay. And the implication is one of nearness. It's one of closeness. It's one of influence. It's one of security, right? You are inhabited and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Spirit dwells in you. Now just notice there the, the interchangeable terms and the fluidity of Paul's language here that he uses. Look there, verse 9. He says, the Spirit, and then later he says, the Spirit of God. But then later in verse 9, notice he says, the Spirit of Christ. Which is it? Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 9, notice he says, you are in the Spirit, but then he says, the Spirit dwells in you. So you're in the Spirit, the Spirit's in you. And then verse 10, it's Christ who dwells in you. So am I in the Spirit, or is the Spirit in me, or is Christ in me, or am I in Christ? Which is it? And the answer, of course, is yes. 
Yes! He uses them interchangeably. And he's not confused about the Trinity, okay? Nor is he saying that the Spirit and Christ are the same person. No, no. They share the same divine essence of God, and therefore they are inseparable. The Spirit in us is Christ's presence with us. The Spirit in us is Christ's presence with us. So notice then difference number two. Not only does the Spirit dwell in you, but difference number two, the Spirit has sway over you. The Spirit has sway over you. Look there, verse 9. Not only does the Spirit of God dwell in you, but verse 9, you are in the Spirit. You see the distinction there? So the Spirit dwells in you, and you are in the Spirit. Meaning what? Meaning this. Christian, you are under the power and control and influence of the Spirit. He has decisive influence over your life. As one pastor said, he said, he's not just outside barking commands at us, trying to influence us. He is inside of us working a new heart, conforming us to Christ and causing us to delight in and obey His commands. And that's the work of the Spirit in you, Christian, because you are in the Spirit. And so let that, let that give you assurance this morning that if you, if you are in the Spirit, if you're under the sway and the control of the Spirit, then notice there in verse 9 the promise is, in fact, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. Difference number three, you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Look there, verse nine. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Right? Or to state it positively then, what? If you have the spirit, if you possess the spirit, then what? You belong to Christ. He inhabits you and he owns you. You belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6 is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Christ bought you, Christian, and you belong to him. And that truth, it should give you such great assurance. It should give you such great security, Christian, because Jesus says in John 10, no one will be able to snatch them from my hand. I own them. They are, they are mine. You are his possession. And this verse, I think it should lay to rest. Any theology, listen, any theology that says that the Spirit is something that you possess post-conversion, right? That you get later on. No, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So we're inhabited by the Spirit, we're under the control or the sway of the Spirit, we belong to the Spirit. Final difference, difference number four. You have resurrection life now and in the life to come. You have resurrection life now and in the life to come. Look there, verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So verse 10, notice, Christian, you have resurrection life now. He says, but if the Spirit is in you, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, meaning our, our physical bodies will die, our earthly bodies, they're going to decay, they're going to deteriorate and die. That's all the result of living in a fallen world. Because of sin, the body will die. However, we have the Spirit in us now. And therefore, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
And thus we have life now. We experience life now. We have no condemnation now. You are alive right now to God because of righteousness, because you've been declared righteous through Jesus Christ and there's no condemnation and now you have spiritual life now. Though you die. (laughs) I, I find myself thinking more about death now than I used to. Maybe that's just what happens as you start to get older. Teenagers, you don't really think about death much like you should. But I think you do as you get older. And, 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 and you also, can I get some amens here? You also, I think, begin to feel the effects of age, don't you? Amen. In fact, I've noticed that as I'm getting older, I, I can actually hurt myself just by getting out of bed in the morning, right? I mean, I, I have this love-hate relationship with those Facebook memories that say like eight years ago on this day, right? Why? Because I just think to myself, man, I'm looking older. (laughs) Maybe that's what children and ministry (laughs) will do to you. But what does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 4. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Amen? We have spiritual life now. And, and, verse 11, we have resurrection life to come. Look there, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, Christian, if he's in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 11, notice, it focuses here on the believer's future security. Amen? The spirit is in us now. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you now, the spirit is in us now, assuring us, guaranteeing us, promising us, notice, of this future, glorious, eternal resurrection reality to come. So the indwelling then, it's the prerequisite of the resurrection, right? That's what it is. We are assured of a future resurrection now because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what a down payment is, right? A down payment is money up front, you get it now, and the rest is coming, Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day, there is coming a day when just as Christ was raised bodily from the dead, so too will he raise us. He will raise us. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, and we believe he has, amen, right? I mean, our whole belief hinges on that, that he's been raised from the dead. If Christ is raised from the dead, then he so too will raise us to transformed glorified, sinless, perfect, painless, unhindered bodies. So are you ready to die? Do you have that level of assurance? You do if the Spirit of Christ is in you. I need to wrap it up. After describing the dark realities of this fallen condition, who we were because of the flesh and and then now the glorious reality of this new present position we have. Then in verses 12 to 13, look there. They're a call to action. So he moves from declaration here to, to exhortation. From who we are and what we have to now what we're to do now. Finally, very briefly, the call to those of the Spirit. Verses 12 and 13, the call to those of the Spirit. And it was here in my preparation this week that I realized that I was out of time. And so this week I want to just conclude here with the what of verses 12 and 13. And then next week I want to give you the how of verses 12 and 13. So next week, next week then will really be the practical application of this third and final point. So if you want the practical application of this, then just come back next week, okay? So just note here the call to those who are in the Spirit. Look there, verses 12 and 13. 
So then, brothers, so again, note the transition here. Meaning, in light of verses 5 to 11, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So notice, though, that even though the Christian is no longer in the flesh, as we already have said, even though we've been transferred from the realm of the flesh now to the realm of the Spirit, even though we've been given this, this new nature and we're alive to the things of the Spirit now, the Spirit's work in us, it doesn't mean, however, that we no longer have contact with this world. It doesn't mean that we aren't still in these fleshly bodies, right? That we, that we, we don't have the presence of indwelling sin in us, that it hasn't been eradicated from our lives yet, yet. And so we have a call, don't we? What's the call? Look there, verse 12 and 13. The call is to put sin to death in our lives now. Notice what he says first. He says, we have no, look there, We have no obligation to the flesh. We have no obligation to the flesh. Look there, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Some translations say we have no obligation to the flesh, meaning we owe the flesh nothing. We don't have to obey it. We don't have to cave into it. Christian, you have power over it. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Right? Yes, we live in contact with this world and we experience the temptation to sin. But listen, we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free. Chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, Christian, from the law of sin and death. You're free. You owe the flesh nothing. You don't have to go back to Egypt. You don't have to obey your old masters. You don't have to become addicts, enslaved, imprisoned to sin. No. Why? You've been set free. You owe it nothing. The penalty's gone, and the power is broken. And so you have no obligation to the flesh. But it also means, hang with me, because this is very important, and you'll see where we're going next week. It means that we must also put sin to death now. Look there, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Do you hear the warning in that passage, friend? It's a warning. It's a serious warning. And and either way, it means death. Here's what I mean. Either you live according to the flesh and you experience death, eternal death forever, or you put to death sin in your life and experience eternal life. Either way, something has to die. So notice, verse 13, Paul places our salvation conditionally upon whether or not we are putting sin to death in our lives right now. This salvation is conditional. Now, before you say, Pastor, that sounds, you sound like a heretic, okay? Uh, That sounds unbiblical. What about once saved, always saved? Salvation isn't by works, it's not by what I do, and I say yes, absolutely that's true, but the logical sequence of Paul's argument in verses 5 to 13 make it clear that if you aren't putting sin to death in your life now, it's a warning. Here's what I mean. If verses 1 to 4 are true of you, if you've been justified in Christ, set free by the Spirit, 
If you've been transferred from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit, if you have the mindset of the spirit, if the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and inhabits you and empowers you and is dominating and directing your life, if he's actively exerting his influence over your life and you've been freed from the penalty of sin and you've been freed from the power of sin, then listen. By the power of the spirit, you will actively be putting sin to death in your life now. And if not, You're not a Christian. So this is a warning this morning for those in this room here today who may think they're Christians, and they're not. Because if you continue to sin habitually with no real sign of repentance, if there's no sign of spiritual life, no growth empowered by the Spirit, then Paul says you need to examine yourself, friend. You need to examine your life. And perhaps some of you need to do that this morning because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. The Puritans, they they had a term for this, putting sin to death. They called it mortification, meaning to kill, to kill something. So to mortify sin means to, to kill sin, to put it to death in your life. In fact, the great John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, he wrote a famous book entitled On the Mortification of Sin in Believers. One of those really catchy Puritan titles, right? And it's a rather dense book. In fact, I mean, you just read Owen and it makes your head hurt, okay? And it's a great book, credible book, but one you just have to work through painfully slow. And in fact, it's a book nearly 100 pages or so just on verse 13, And here's what Owen said, famous quote. Do you mortify sin? Meaning, do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or what? It will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So what does that mean? It means you actively put sin to death in your life. You choke it out. You become ruthless. You become merciless. You do it daily. You do it intentionally. You don't coddle a viper. What do you do? You kill it. And what does that look like practically? Well, that's what we're going to turn to next week. So the application then is this. I think the verses here, verses 5 to 13, they should cause you, Christian, listen, to remember who you once were. I mean, this, this describes you. This is who you used to be. Can you think about that time in your life? This used to be you. You were in the flesh, indifferent toward God, disinterested in God, living your life with no Godward focus whatsoever, all the while headed straight for hell. And then, and then the Spirit, He broke into your life. And he moved in upon your heart and he caused you to be born again and he opened your eyes to the gospel and he put his spirit in you and he's guaranteed your future salvation. Oh, it should cause you to worship this morning. And I think the application also is, it's a call to examine yourself now. All of us in this room. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. So, listen, it's good, listen, it's good from time to time to take stock of your life, to look inward, and to examine your life. And that's what these verses would call you to do. Does the Spirit dwell in you? Do you belong to Christ? Is your life characterized by someone who's in the flesh or in the Spirit? So, look inward. But don't look long. (laughs) Don't look long because then what you need to do is direct your attention to Christ, who is our hope, who is our righteousness. Let's pray. Father, this sermon got away from me. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would help your people to process this. Help us to hear and understand your word. Oh God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you work in a miraculous way in our lives?
For some this morning, perhaps, who were in the flesh, or maybe they walked into the room in the flesh, (laughs) but now in the midst of this preaching of the gospel, they've come alive to the things of God. Would you, oh God, illumine your word. And for the believers in the room this morning, Lord, would this glorious reality of what the Spirit has done in us and to us, would it enable us now to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit so that we might live. We ask these in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, please. Wonderful.